You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. So, when I was a teenager, I fell in love with cars. I think a lot of teenage boys do this. Maybe not so much nowadays because cars are not as exciting as they were back in the, back in the 80s. Um, I would spend hours annoying the local news agents by standing in their shops browsing the car magazines. Sometimes I'd even buy one. As a result, I could tell the difference between all the different types of car on the road, just at a glance. Now, even though I've lost this infatuation, and I no longer obsess over car magazines or even websites, I still have a great fondness for cars and I can still recognise most models at a glance. My wife and daughter, on the other hand, struggle to find our own car in the car park. They have to <laughs> look at the number plate to figure out which our car is. <laughs> what makes the difference there? It's simple. I love cars and they just view them as merely a way to get from A to B. Love is the difference. Here's another example. Who could name these breeds of horses? Now, you have to be a horse lover, right? If you love horses, they suddenly get much more varied and interesting and recognisable. If you know anyone who loves horses, you know how passionate that love is. Now, these are real breeds, of course, and there's the names. Don't worry if you can't read them. I'm not going to give you a test. But if you did love horses, you would know all the names, or most of them. And you'd certainly ace that test. Now my point is that love makes all the difference in understanding something. I love computers and software. And I've invested tens of thousands of hours into the field. And as a result, I'm pretty good at understanding such things. Even when they're behaving bizarrely, as they often do, by the way, as I'm sure you're aware. And this truth applies to people as well. If you love somebody, you will naturally invest into understanding them. Sometimes it's, it's true that we, we think we've learned all there is to know about someone, particularly our spouse, and we think we can stop learning. But that, of course, is a mistake, right? There's always more to learn. It's true to say that only love has the power to drive us to keep investing decade after decade. Now, the account that the Apostle John recorded in chapter 9 of his Gospel is a story that explores the difference that attitude makes in our relationship with God. Specifically, the difference in attitude towards Jesus. So first, a little context. Remember that in chapter 8, Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now we often think, I don't know about you, 
But I often think of Jesus' light in purely intellectual terms, so understanding. And certainly the rational understanding of God's word is a major part of how Jesus lights up the world. After all, a few verses later, we read, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So truth and teachings. But is this all that Jesus means when he says that he's the light of the world? Is it only about intellectual knowledge? If Jesus had stopped making this claim about being the light at the end of chapter 8, then maybe that would be the case. But then in chapter 9, he continues to unpack what it means to be the light of the world through a practical demonstration. He performs the sixth sign recorded in John's Gospel. There's seven signs. This is the sixth. He demonstrates his power over blindness. Even a built-in blindness, a blindness that was present from birth. But that's just the catalyst for what follows. So let's read this chapter and explore how Jesus shines light into dark souls. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am in the world, while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud, and with the saliva, made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. This sign seems to have taken place in Jerusalem based on Jesus' instruction to wash at the pool of Siloam. The blind man in this story does not seek out Jesus but rather Jesus approaches him. Nonetheless, Jesus does ask the man to participate in his healing by sending him to wash in the pool. John's explanation that Siloam means sent emphasizes how Jesus is the one sent from God to save the world. Now, the details of the healing, the spit and the mud, they're very vivid, aren't they? And they are much discussed, like commentaries talk about this sort of thing a lot but but there's not actually a lot that we can conclude from them other than that Jesus power works however he wants it to work there's no magic ritual that Jesus must perform in order to heal but at the same time he can choose to work through 
the most humble of materials. And of course that's still true today. The actual miracle is almost anticlimactic. The man went and washed and came back seeing. But despite John's simple rendition, there's no way that such a profoundly astonishing healing could go unnoticed. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. The first to notice it are the neighbours. His neighbours and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, No, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. They asked, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Sorry. So why are the neighbours so sceptical about the identity of the once blind man? Are they not expecting miracles? <laughs> well, clearly not. This is, this is actually one of the ironic things about the Gospels. There are many sceptics, and I'm sure that you've come across some, who, who think that mir- the miracles recorded in the Gospels are simply the delusions of ignorant ancients who would believe anything. But we, enlightened modern people, we know science, we know better than that. But of course the people in the Gospels are themselves sceptical. Even when they see the evidence of this healing, this miracle with their own eyes, they're still sceptical. Some of the once blind man's neighbours are so sceptical that they find it easier to believe that this identical twin suddenly appeared from nowhere, then that this man was healed. That is some pretty serious scepticism. So this scepticism, it blinds the neighbours, blinds them to the miracle and to what it is witnessing to. But what motivates their scepticism? Well, what always motivates scepticism? Isn't, isn't it... Isn't it a reluctance to lose control, to, to take risks, to, to be forced out of one's comfort zone? That certainly is the case today and it looks to me like that's pretty much what's happening back in ancient Jerusalem. Scepticism is less a demand for a high standard of evidence and more of a demand for a more predictable and less challenging world. And so the sceptic remains in the darkness because the light demands growth and change. But this isn't the only reaction to this astonishing sign. Let's read on. 
Then they took the man, presumably the neighbours, took the man who had been born, who had been blind, to the Pharisees. Because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud on my eyes and when I washed it away I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is is not from God for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about the man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Pharisees are introduced into this story and immediately John explains that it was a Sabbath when Jesus performed this healing. It seems apparent, at least to John, that the two are related. And the majority of the Pharisees certainly seem to think the same way. Their immediate response to the man's testimony is to accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath. And to conclude that he is therefore not from God. The only problem with their logic is that their premise, namely that Jesus was sinfully working on the Sabbath, relies on their own judgment, not on God's word. Jesus has already scolded them about this when he healed the lame man and again at the festival of booths. But the Pharisees are not for turning. Rather, Jesus' rebuke has hardened their hearts into bitterness and murderous hatred. So by choosing to dispute with the Pharisees over the Sabbath and to rub their noses in this again by healing the man born blind on the Sabbath, Jesus has picked a fight over the authority of the Pharisees. Do they have the authority to dictate what work is and what work isn't where Moses himself was silent or at least vague? Jesus says no, They have no such authority. And so, they hate him. Hatred blinds us. When I first moved to Brisbane from a farm in North Queensland, I'd grown up, you know, on a hobby hobby farm. Plenty of space, not too much rain, very dry, not humid. I hated the city. I hated it. I even wrote one of my English assignments was how much I hated Brisbane. I, I interviewed people <laughs> about all of the disadvantages of the city. My, my hatred blinded me to the many delights of any city, and Brisbane in particular. It was only as I let go of that hatred that I could begin to understand how I could live happily in Brisbane. If I'd held on to that hatred, my life would have been so much more constrained and difficult. I wouldn't have been able to live in a city and enjoy it. And this is the doom 
of most of the Pharisees. Notice the contrast between the blind man and the Pharisees. When they ask this uneducated man what he thinks of Jesus, he declares that Jesus is a prophet. This is probably the greatest authority that this man could grant to Jesus. Certainly the greatest position that he was aware of. And he declares it boldly against the Pharisees' clear disagreement. So why is he so bold? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, we turn now to his parents. So we've talked about the neighbours, the Pharisees, now the parents. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called in his parents. They asked them, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. The Pharisees, in their insistence to disprove this sign, called the man's parents. But the man's parents react in yet another way. So we've had scepticism, hatred, the parents react in fear. Skepticism is born of a desire to stay comfortable. Hatred is born of a desire to maintain authority and power. And now we see fear, which is yet another way to maintain control of our lives. The difference with fear is that fear recognises that the threats facing one cannot be fought. So you just have to retreat. In the case of the parents, they recognised that the Pharisees' authority and hatred are terribly dangerous for anyone that gets in their way. So they quickly get out of the way and pass the buck back to their son. I don't know, it doesn't sound like what parents are supposed to do. Fear is the desperate person's scepticism. A sceptic is happy in their beliefs. They don't want the inconvenience of new knowledge. A fearful person, they can be pretty miserable and unhappy in their beliefs, but they're certain that changing their beliefs will actually make things even worse. And so they flee from that. The parents can see that rejoicing in their son's healing will cut them off from the synagogue the centre of Jewish life. When we were in Melbourne, um, I asked a friend how their church handled the Victorian law that criminalises helping homosexual people to experience healthy sexuality. You know that there's a law against that in Victoria, right? It's the, what's it called, the gay... 
um, I can't remember what, what the colloquial name is for it, but you're not allowed to help people turn away from homosexuality in any way. So this friend replied that if necessary, they were prepared to go to jail in order to obey the gospel. That's the sort of decision that the blind man's parents were facing, that sort of decision. But unlike my Melbourne friends, the parents chose not to affirm Jesus' power in order to protect their own lives. So this is all... So far the story's a bit depressing, isn't it? Apart from the bold declaration of the healed man, we've encountered scepticism, hatred and fear. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees are really gluttons for punishment. So they call the man back. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been born blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied. But I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? What do you want to hear? Why do you want to hear it again? Ah, oh, do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, You are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God... He couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. This is a wonderful example to us of how to testify to God's work in our lives. Don't you think? The once, bland, the once blind man doesn't pretend to know more than he does. I don't know whether he's a sinner, he says, but I do know that I was blind and now I see. These are words that we sing with great gusto, aren't they? These words have resonated down through the ages. The Pharisees demand that the man explain, explain how Jesus did his work is met with a cheeky reply. Do you want to hear this again? Because you want to follow him too? The man throws caution to the wind and fully identifies himself with Jesus. 
he now publicly declares himself to be one of Jesus' disciples. And even when the Pharisees curse him, he responds with a calm, apologetic, carefully arguing for why Jesus must have come from God. There's lots of apologetics in the Bible, and this is one of the examples. You may actually be surprised to find that a number of commentators believe that the argument the man presents here is faulty. They think that since some workers of evil, such as Pharaoh's magicians that confronted Moses, were able to perform miraculous signs, and they were performing them from evil sort of sources, the man's claim that God doesn't listen to sinners is wrong. But these commentators, for whom I have great respect, I think they're getting themselves confused. I think the man's argument's simple, and this is it. First premise, God only performs miracles on behalf of holy people. Second premise, healing congenital blindness, blindness from birth, is a miracle from God. It's not possible for it to happen otherwise. Therefore, the man who healed me is a holy person. The Pharisees, they don't think they can argue with these premises and this conclusion. And so they just throw the man out. The great fear of his parents is visited upon him. But he doesn't seem to be afraid, does he? Now, hopefully, you can see that there's only one person in this whole story who's responding reasonably and rationally. Right? Who is it? The Pharisees? No? The parents? No? The neighbours? No? It's just the man who was healed, right? He's the only one. Why is he able to think clearly and coherently while the neighbours scoff the parents quake and the Pharisees rage. Is it not because of his growing love for Jesus that frees him to think clearly, to be reasonable, to be rational? There's a famous saying in English, I'm sure you know it, love is blind. You've heard that one, right? This is perhaps one of the most misleading aphorisms in the English language. You'll not find such a claim in the Bible because it's simply not true. When this saying uses the word love, it actually means something more like lust. So the real claim is lust is blind and I think that actually is pretty accurate. Lust is blind. Love, which is a very different thing, is not blind. It's enlightening. In his first letter to the churches, the Apostle John wrote, Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. So what is love? Well, 
a working definition for this sermon, so don't criticise me for this, please. We could say that love is to value another as much as or more than oneself. And the healed man sacrifices his position in society for Jesus' sake because he values Jesus' holiness over his own comfort. He loves Jesus. Jesus himself loves each of us. And so he gives up his very life so that we can be restored into relationship with the Father. Love is about value. And love requires a humility that the Pharisees didn't know. It requires a, a courage that the, that the parents didn't have. And it requires a sacrifice that the neighbours couldn't give. But in the light of love, everything makes sense. And humility, courage and sacrifice become possible. Of course, when we love Jesus, it's, it's, it's not a one-way thing. There's no such thing as unrequited love when it comes to God. Not from our direction. And so the epilogue, the epilogue of this story is important. So let's read that. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man, so he was thrown out of the synagogue. So when Jesus heard that he'd been thrown out of the synagogue, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I, I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said. And he worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. To the response of love, Jesus seeks out the man and reveals himself to him. When we love and obey Jesus, he'll never turn his back on us. Never. He'll reveal himself to us and our relationship will grow deeper and deeper. But, and here's the kicker, when we reject him, and especially when we claim to reject him in full knowledge, we'll lose everything. Jesus reveals a secret hidden truth. Those who claim to see in their own strength will be revealed as blind. So when we set ourselves up, ourselves, as the ultimate authority on the world, we cut ourselves off from the source of reality 
from God. But those who recognize their blindness, they recognize the way their sinful nature distorts and hides reality, and we have the humility to seek knowledge in God. We will receive the perfect perspective of God. So it's tempting. It's tempting to think that Jesus is uh, talking in purely intellectual terms. He's the light of the world, so if I understand his teachings, then I can obey them and receive my reward, right? And Protestants, we've thought that way, we've tended to think that way rather a lot. But this story reveals the lie in that idea, I think. Light is not just understanding, does include understanding, but it's not just that. It must include love. So you don't just have to agree with Jesus. We, we can only be bathed in the light of Jesus when we love him. When we value him more than ourselves. Our world thinks that we can think clearly without Jesus, that we can discover the truths of creation through the disinterested practices of purely rational science or even purely rational religion. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the accelerating collapse of science in our day and intellectualized religion, I think, is a brute testimony, brute testimony to the reality that intellectualism alone is not enough. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he also says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Love is active. It enables us to live holy lives and it's, it's the fruit of living holy lives as well. It's this virtuous circle. The holy love connects us with the ground of all reality. An ancient saying claims... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Pretty good saying. It's still true. But for us, hidden in Christ, I think this saying has become even richer. The Apostle John points out that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so, so we can rightly recognize that the love of the Lord, the love of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Because the word fear in the Old Testament in our relationship with God is, is enriched into the word love. Our relationship with God is a love relationship. Like the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 when we lose our first love, we lose power. Our minds and our lives become darker. It doesn't matter how hard we study the Bible in such times. We must rediscover our first love for Christ. 
I know many of us Aussies don't like showing our feelings. I grew up in North Queensland. We're very, very unemotional in North Queensland. But God made us to feel, to love, to care. We must not let our heads be separated from our hearts. When we read God's word, it should move us. When we come to God in prayer, it must be with groans of, of, of pain and cries of delight. When we share Jesus with others, they should see our love for him burning in our eyes and on our lips. It's only in love that we engage rightly and productively with the maker of all that is. So, let us love our Lord with all our hearts so that we can proclaim with the healed man. Let's say this together. I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord, we were once lost in darkness. But you shone the light of your love into our lives and, and you set us free. Help us to love you with all our hearts and to love our neighbours as ourselves. Let your light blaze in our lives as we show our love by obeying you. Lord, this world is, is terribly dark and it seems to be getting darker right at the moment. There's no, no light from this world. You are our only hope. Kindle our love, Lord. In your name we pray, our Lord Jesus.